Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that probes the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including the Greens push for electric only new cars on Australian roads by 2030. We have a range of fascinating comments about the trucking industry from the reveal of the new range of Scania trucks. Road freight has come a long way from the cowboy image and is embracing many community issues. And in our panel discussion with Alan Zervis, we take a witty look at some quirky cars that were shown at the Geneva Motor Show. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. The Greens recently released a policy to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars in Australia from 2030. Under the proposal, all new vehicle sales by 2030 will be electric cars. They have also proposed that the luxury car tax be increased. Several European countries have put in place similar timeframes to phase out petrol and diesel cars, but this is the first time that any major Australian political party has recommended a similar course of action. The Greens' policy has a number of main elements. The setting of emission standards for new petrol and diesel cars in line with American and European regulations. Eliminate tariffs, stamp duty and GST on new electric cars to make them more affordable. Increase the luxury car tax from 33% to 50% and establish a $150 million fund to help expand the network of charging stations for electric cars. Mercedes-Benz is now the most valuable individual automotive brand in the world. Well, that's according to a study conducted by Brand Finance. The German car maker edged out Toyota and BMW for the top spot. Brand Finance says that Mercedes managed an impressive 24% year-on-year growth in its brand value to $44 billion. Toyota fell by 6% and now sits at $43 billion, which Brand Finance blames on the carmaker's weak position in China. New car buyers in the Chinese market have been slow to warm to Japanese brands, but they are keen on luxury brands. The Volkswagen Group, which oversees VW, Audi, Porsche, Lamborghini and several other brands, is still the most valuable overall motor company, valued at $75 billion for its entire portfolio. In the United States, Uber Freight is going from strength to strength, and the company recently announced that they are now hauling cargo with self-driving trucks in a limited way. Recently, a load was transported from the U.S. Midwest to its final destination in Southern California. For about 600 kilometres of the trip, the truck drove itself across Arizona highways. Uber is moving away from testing and short-haul trips to implementing its logistics platform on real, full-delivery routes. 
Uber has claimed the trucking industry doesn't have anything to fear. Jobs will be boosted, not eliminated, by its logistics and autonomous trucking technology, they say. Chinese startup Too Simple started testing autonomous trucks in Arizona last year, while Volvo, Embark and other truck makers continue testing the technology. Brabham Automotive has revealed the name of the race car that it will officially unveil in May, along with a short audio track of the sound it will make. It continues the naming convention used when the original Brabham racing cars were built in the 1960s. The BT name was a contraction of the two originators involved in the development of the cars, Jack Brabham and Ron Turanek, and was a naming convention which remained with the mark until it closed its doors in 1992. The project has already undergone extensive engineering and is nearing the end of its testing ahead of its formal unveiling. The Brabham BT-62 will be officially released on the 2nd of May. The 343-kilowatt V8 Mustang GT, which goes on sale in Australia in August, will be released with a new feature, a drag strip mode. This will enable the supercar to accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometres an hour in less than four seconds. The new mode minimises disengagement time in the new 10-speed automatic, sending more torque more of the time. However, while the drag strip mode is a new addition, Ford Australia will continue to disable Mustang's line locker or burnout mode. Ford Australia boss Graham Wickman has said deleting the line locker was acting in the spirit of local anti-hoon laws, under which a driver can have his or her car confiscated for performing a burnout. Australia is the only market in the world in which the Mustang is sold without the line locker. This month, the first ever Maserati Global Gathering will bring together a host of Maserati cars from around the world, with a fleet of classic, historic and new Maseratis participating in a five-day drive from Melbourne to Sydney. Organised by the Maserati Owners Club of Australia and open to Maserati Owners Clubs around the world, this is the first time that the brand has sanctioned a global gathering. Road-going Maseratis taking part in the event range from 1956, when Maserati began producing volume production road-going cars, through to current models. The happening concludes with a gala event and car display at the Sydney Opera House on the 26th of March. And that has been the news. During the week I went to the reveal of the new generation of Scania fleet of trucks, which range in size from the fixed tray delivery vehicle to the prime mover, that can tow a semi-trailer, a B-double, or, on our outback roads, a road train. All the new trucks share a basic design that includes much modern technology. The presentation started with the usual high-quality video, with the first pictures being about roads going through pristine forests, with the headline, Driving the Shift to a More Sustainable Transport System. This may sound like a bit of marketing hype, but I spoke to a number of their senior executives from here and overseas who attended the launch and found that there were some profound underlying changes occurring in the industry, which is truly addressing issues of sustainability. 
I had a chat with Alexander Mastrovito, Scania's Head of Sustainable Transport Solutions in Asia and Oceania. The sustainable manager, is that a term that wouldn't exist 10 years ago? Absolutely, and I, uh, I, I see this as uh, one of the first telltale signs that this is something that is becoming more and more integrated into our industry, that this exists. And it doesn't only exist from a headquarter position right now, but also out in all the different markets where we operate. Sustainable means different things to different people. There is both the environmental issue and there's also the business sustainability. Is that a balance you have to work to? Absolutely. And uh, it's not only those two. When we talk about sustainability, we always have to take into account the economical side of it, environmental side of it, but also the societal side of it. So that's the kind of three-pronged theory that we usually work from. I think you're on a number of different organisations you have a representation on. Is that part of the companies having to interact with a much broader uh, part of the community? Absolutely. This is important because I think sustainability completely changes our view of competition and our role in society and our role in our industry completely. We're not in sustainability. There are no competitors. We're talking about friendly co-opetition, basically. And in the end, we all have the same goal. We need to drive the shift in this industry towards a sustainable uh, one, because today it's untenable. At the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference in July this year, we are looking at traffic engineering issues of autonomous vehicles and other technologies, rather than having just an optimistic dream of a perfect digital world. We have to make sure that vehicles have the right environment to operate effectively and safely on the road system, and the devil is in the detail. This led to a question to Anthony King, the Sustainability Manager for Scania here in Australia. There will need to be some traffic engineering too of how you get the trucks onto a motorway. Is Australia an ideal environment and will you be running trials here? Is, are we pushing for that? In the short term, not at the moment because obviously there's still a lot that needs to be put in place. But as the appetite um, evolves, for sure, we will be ready to, to manage that. Anthony then passed the question back to Alexander to reflect on their overseas experience. What we're doing right now is that is that we are trying to support Australian authorities with uh, the knowledge that we have in this space so that the correct vision is created for the future. Because mm-hmm. without a vision, you're going to have a lot of different actors putting in place different things which might have effects that will be counter to the benefit of society. So the first step is to create a vision of what autonomy should mean for Australia. And good examples of that we see from Sweden, from Singapore, to a certain extent also from China, where there is has been a lot of work done to create a consensus of what autonomy should mean in order to get the societal benefits that you want from it. Because it is a double-edged sword. If not handled correctly, it could mean challenges in the future. Are we getting better at measuring what is good for societal benefit? I spoke to some engineers about this because money in business is often the key parameter. GDP is, I don't care how you spend it as long as you're spending it and that's good. Are we getting better at perceiving and measuring community benefit? I think what's happening now is that at least there's an awareness being built up of 
externalities. But I don't think we're very good at, at taking externalities into account when we actually take decisions. But at least we're discussing them right now. And hopefully there will be a new system for measuring the impact of, of policy uh, in the future where we take this into account. But right now we're still in the paradigm where it doesn't matter if we pollute or if we create negative effects somewhere else, as long as we make enough money on the other side, mm. all is forgiven, right? Mm. I don't see a real change there, but I see at least awareness about it coming. The availability of data is now a major component in the freight haulage industry. Chris Mullett, founder and editor of Australia's largest trucking magazine, Power Talk, puts it in perspective. There are hundreds of thousands of Scania trucks worldwide, all of which link telematically to the head office, and it records the use of the engine, the type of service requirements that they have, so they can predict when you need a service rather than just go on a fixed mileage. This changes the nature of the manufacturer from just giving, you know, selling the car and waiting for it to come back to being much more involved, is it, with the, almost the day-to-day understanding of what the truck's doing? It's very much a partnership because this way around, when a vehicle is coming up to be due for a service, the company knows that the service is due, it can pre-arrange to have all the parts available at the dealership and then they actually advise the owner of the truck, it's time you went in to be looked at. And might have an idea of if there is an issue. Yeah, indeed, yes, and, and they can predict when something, every component is likely to fail at some stage and they can predict when that would be likely and of course plan in advance of that to replace that component before any fault happens. Which means the truck's off the road for a shorter time? And, and is not parked out in the middle of the boondock somewhere waiting for a tow truck. If something does break out in the boondocks they would know too. Well, that's the other thing in this country, of course, because five kilometres out of some towns, especially in Western Australia, you have no communication at all except by satellite. And these systems work on satellite communication. Martin Toomey is Scania's sales manager for Australia, and of course, you would expect him to be positive about the new vehicles and to readily mention features that exemplify the good points of these trucks. But his thoughts are grounded in the experience of the users and he has a good understanding of modern truck design and its impacts on the relationship between management and drivers. Certainly the drivers first and foremost came back into the depots raving about the change in the technology, the feel of the vehicle being so different, the layout, the visibility, the drivability of this truck is really quite unique. But then, of course, the directors of these organisations that own the fleets get to examine the actual data coming out of the vehicles and they see the the head-to-head comparison test results and, and of course, it's compelling. These vehicles do save an awful lot of money. Mm. Uh, And Scania talks about total operating economy. And, And what that means is creating a sustainable business for the fleet operator. I love that point that perhaps the manager might think they have to enforce good behaviour and the driver says you might not understand. Is telematics and that giving us a better level playing field to discuss those issues? Look, it is. And to a large extent, the OptiCruise, for example, the gear solution is so intuitive that you could almost clone your best driver across the fleet by allowing the vehicle to make its own decisions. But couple that to what we now have as we would call it driver scores, 
where the drivers are measured across parameters. Now, a good driver, for example, may be getting very, very high scores, and, and it, that particular vehicle, if it's attached to, for example, one of our flexible maintenance plans, could actually be saving the fleet money every month versus a vehicle that's only been driven perhaps to a, a, an average driver score. So the incentive to monitor the driver's performance and encourage drivers to continuously improve their driving style is live, it's perpetual. Mm. And drivers can witness every day how they're improving. They can get tips to help them improve. And it is very much a coaching tool rather than a disciplinary tool. And I think the old fleet manager model was you need to improve your driving or else. Well, this isn't that approach at all. This is, this is very much a let's help you to aspire to be the best you can possibly be. And the vehicle lends itself to that. I'm giving a paper on road safety in New Zealand next week, mm. which talks about not the stern lecture, no. but the engagement where they actually own the solution rather than me telling you what I think is wrong with you. So is good trucking design help that interaction between drivers and, and owners? Look, without a doubt, it has. And I, and I think it comes down to the connectivity of the vehicle. So, you know, tradition, the traditional workspace of a driver was a remote, you know, I'm out of the office, no one can touch me for the next 10 hours. Well, now we know exactly what is occurring within the vehicle. So the relationship with the driver and, the, and probably as well the, the nature of person that you want to employ uh, to be a driver is somewhat different. You, you don't necessarily need somebody who's just a maverick out on the road taking care of every, every task independently. You want somebody who can interact well with the base and can be responsive to, to agile shifts of scheduling or understand the nature of the technology that's that's available to them within the cab and, and utilise it. So, you know, a different set of skills, perhaps. I also had a very interesting chat with Christopher Hansen, Scania's Head of Styling and Industrial Design, about their approach to the vehicle and particularly to the well-being of the drivers. We will talk about this next week and cover issues such as how do you design a truck to give the right message to other drivers and pedestrians. It can't be warm and fuzzy, but it should also not be threatening. He covers the impact the truck design has on drivers, including when they are in the sleeping compartment, and how do we get good safety and other information communicated most effectively to drivers. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we come to the end of the program and the Geneva Motor Show has thrown up a wide range of unusual vehicles. To talk about that, I have on the line Alan Zervis from gaycarboys.com.au who'll cast his acerbic eye over these particular vehicles. Alan, thank you for your time. No problem. I enjoy being acerbic. <laughs> I think it's part of your DNA and I mean that in the nicest possible way. I try not to spread it around too much. Edon Green Zeklat. It is a slopey, long car in the style of the 30s. You know, I had an uncle that had an old uh, DeSoto or Packard, Pacno DeSoto. It had that sort of very long, uh, slopey rear tail to it. This has got the same? It does. Uh, almost. Uh, I think they used to call them a boat tail. Oh, okay. It's unusual, isn't it? Uh, it reminds us of a certain Holden design exercise they did one time. The effigy. It's uh, still in Holden's headquarters down in Melbourne. This is a lovely looking thing, and even the colours reminiscent of those early early motoring 
era, except, of course, they weren't pearlescent. Richard Falazzo, I think, was the Australian Holden designer. Mm. Yeah, the colour, you're, you're right, isn't it? And that unlike the earlier colours, which were perhaps a little flat, this is iridescent, and I think it changes colour in terms of light. Absolutely right. And it's funnel, funnily enough, Richard Falazzo told me about um, being able to do some of those uh, slopes and contours and so forth, but only being able to do them in show cars because they're almost impossible to manufacture. I think the size of this would be prohibitive in many, one, in many ways. It's certainly big. It's huge. It's huge. And, uh, of course, as in most of those show cars, most of them aren't ever meant to be produced. You know, they're only to show the direction that a, uh, a car company may, may head in the future and uh, to perhaps feature technology. Although it's one of these funny little car, uh, car makers that may... You, you never know, do something in a very bespoke way that may put a few on the road at an exorbitant price, but just being different. They claim it'll have a naturally aspirated 6.2 litre V8, 460 horsepower. What's that, about 350 kilowatts? Would that be right? Yeah, something like that. Not to 103.6 seconds. The reason is it's built to look bulky, yet it's got a whole pile of aluminium and nano composite panels Someone said it is somewhere between turning heads and turning stomachs. <laughs> that's, that's right. But then some of those current Rolls Royces are a little bit in that vein too. That uh, boat tail oh, yeah. phantom is, is pretty awful. I think Rolls Royces generally are, are quite terrible looking in, in my mind. They're big and they, they make a statement, but they don't make a style. Well, they don't make a good style. This thing is... Now, the clever point about it is that they don't do all the development of, I guess, engines and that. It's on a Corvette chassis. It's a, mm. a way of which you can make a very bespoke vehicle on the outside. Yeah, well, it probably explains the engine too. I suspect the engine will be a... Yeah. Um, if it's a 6.2, sounds like it's a soup, some kind of souped-up uh, GM engine. Do you like the front? It's got a little bit of the Morgan look about it, bulging, we would call mud guards and round lights. I see a little bit of Bugatti, actually. Oh, OK. A little bit of Veyron. There's a little bit of Veyron on the grill. It's, it's, it's almost like, they, uh, like a Monet. Monet's impersonation of a, of a, uh, of a, uh, a Bugatti. <laughs> OK. <laughs> It's, uh, it needs to be a little bit more impressionist in the in the look of it. Although with the picture we have with all the lights shining off it, perhaps it's got a bespeckled look that might fit that genre a little bit. It's that paint job. It's uh, it looks different colours under different lights, and uh, you know it, it's almost a rainbow effect. Ah, so of course the impressionists did something very significant. They got outside a lot because of uh, art wasn't mainly indoor portraits and things or yeah. dreams of what a great Greek mythology might have been before that, uh, as a general statement. Let's move on. The Corbellati, it's different, isn't it? Look, I think it looks a bit dull. It, you know, it's not... It, it, it just, to me, looks a bit like an Alpha 4C. Oh, OK. The, the lights at the front, to my mind, it's got a little bit of the old Le Mans Porsche 917 about it. It does. Long nose at the front, which is almost in the style of... An E-type Jaguar, in a way. You know, the bulge over the wheels and the, the long nose with the lights down on, on the corners. These are more elongated and quite different. The roof line and that looks a little bit of Star Wars, Stormtrooper. 
Yeah, it, it does. It do, it looks a little bit like a helmet, but uh, on the Jaguar, I think Jaguar did a better job of that E-type than what this has done of that look by far. This um, it looks like a step back to me. Yeah, and it's painted in a uh, sort of dull, almost undercoat. Those matte paint jobs were quite popular for a while. BMW had that one uh, as part of its palette, but it was very expensive and very expensive to maintain. The Corbellati family has for 70 years, and I quote, creators of jewels, artists and art enthusiasts. Now, I I can understand creating jewels, but creating artists suggests they're into DNA replication, aren't they? (laughs) Well, in one way or another. (laughs) Probably something we can't go into on air. A V8 9-litre bi-turbo, 1,800 horsepower, 2,350 newton metres of torque. That's truck-like in a way. And almost undrivable, I'd suggest. Yeah. Again, you're carrying around something that can do something that you'll never get to do. It's just not worth doing. Well, not capable of doing. Well, indeed, you and I have been in many, in many cars, uh, you know, one in particular that uh, certain Tesla that sure remained nameless where, uh, you know, we got to, to 100 in, uh, you know, 2.4 seconds. And I'm just not quite sure how much faster than that you'd want to be unless you're on some kind of sideshow ride. Yes, indeed. So this is, again, a, a different company trying to produce a car in a world that is now taking on cars more than ever a fashion item. I went to the launch of the, well, the show of the new Lamborghini SUV, of which many people would ask why. I was talking that perhaps the greatest competitor to it is a boat. Here I am spending my money on something that just shows that I've got money. And that's, I think, exactly what all those very expensive cars are for. They're about status and perhaps adding it to a collection, but they're they're certainly not about uh, ease of driving or or getting from one place to another. We talked about the Rolls-Royce. Let's go to Bentley. They've got the V8 Bentayga. It's got that two-tone colour that reminds me of two-tone shoes. And about as much style david it's it's one of those cars that i just ask myself why i had a sit in one once i've never driven one and it, although it's gorgeous inside the outside looks you know it's got a face only a mother could love and uh, that paint job just looks awful next week we will talk about a couple of other things from the geneva motor show which are unusual in not just their looks but for today alan thank you very much for your time thanks for having me david And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Alan Zervis and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.